Hello and you are listening to ScarJo a Go-Go, the podcast where I chronicle and dissect the films of Scarlett Johansson in chronological order. I'm Luke and this week I'm talking about The Prestige. We're here to learn, not just to yarn, for our most loved celebrity. We'll watch the screen, what can we glean from her career trajectory? Cause she'd prefer if you'd refer to her as Miss Johansson. Don't be a jerk to Miss Johansson. Respect her work. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe go. Remember all the way back to Lost in Translation when uh, we entertained the whimsy that Bill Murray may have whispered to an emerging 19-year-old Scarlett Johansson at the end there, always tell the truth. That's one of the theories that goes around. And this is a phrase that I proposed was actually a behind-the-scenes exchange, not about the characters, but about Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson themselves. Uh, And this was an older actor passing on the most important bit of advice that he could ever give to a young performer. Uh, And this is a young performer that over the course of the film, I I truly believe that he's grown to to really care for and really respect and and recognize um, some serious talent in. So he says, always tell the truth, because uh, the truth, of course, is at the core of every great performance. But what happens when a film seems completely committed to deliberately obscuring the truth, to hiding it behind layer and layer of deceit and subterfuge, where every real motivation is masked and what we think we know is constantly undermined by twist upon twist upon turn upon, I'm going to throw in another twist for goodwill, twist. So where does an actor manage to chip out the truth in a film like that? Which, for our purposes, considering that the goal of this podcast is to really study Scarlett Johansson's... Johansson's... Great if I can get her name right. Sorry, Scarlett. She listens. We're here to study her performances and watch her evolution. Sort of chart her development, see the choices, see the echoes between performances, identify those big milestones. But the prestige frustratingly for me, is not about its actors at all, but really about the magician behind the scenes who is pulling all the strings. So this isn't a film about characters, it's about the director, Christopher Nolan, and his three-act trick that he's very proud of himself for uh, pulling off. So the actors here really are merely accomplices, each assigned their own little piece to move around in order to make Christopher Nolan's trick work. This film makes my head hurt. Seriously, like, starting to do this thing, it was like doing homework. But first, when we last left Scarlet, she was shackled to a dining table as the sexiest housebound housewife ever in Brian De Palma's pretty limp, uh, but pretty looking, noir murder mystery, The Black Dahlia. And for me, this film, The Black Dahlia, was just one in a string of films where Scarlett's growing star power 
um, and obvious screen appeal is being sought after and harnessed by um, very talented, accomplished directors with some impressive resumes who uh, seem to have this big idea, solder on this thing, but ultimately fail to deliver on that promise. So she's getting more and more opportunities to work with some of the best in the industry, but I'm really waiting for somebody to give her that film that's really going to excite us again. I mean, she's signed up in good faith. It all sounds good on paper. I want to see these directors work with her and showcase her strengths and surprises by developing new strengths. And as I've said a million times, broken record here, for God's sake, if you're going to put her in, a, in your film, give her something meaningful to do. Now, all that said, I am going to approach The Prestige in a completely different way to how I normally do these shows. Because if I went through it from start to beginning, plot point by agonizing plot point, this would be an eight-hour show. And that's really not worth doing when Scarlet isn't even in this thing very much. I saw the film for the first time, I think it was last year, possibly the end of the year before. Uh, was quite excited for it, ended up being disappointed in it and kind of frustrated by it. I'm going to elaborate on that. Uh, about to watch it again, I thought I really should brush up on the plot. I really want to be focused and not miss anything this time. And even the synopsis I read online was about 4,000 words long. This thing is just impossible. It's very convoluted. There are three different timelines. There's lots of characters. There's twist upon twist. And this whole thing for me, laboriously unravels towards what I found to be a, a rather unsatisfying deus ex machina field conclusion. And I know Nolan is lauded as a genius here by fans, but I feel like there's a real danger of mistaking complicated for clever, which I can accept. Like, I don't mind complicated if all these, you know, baffling pieces at first suddenly come together in a very satisfying or revelatory way. But for me, the explanation behind the prestige is actually probably the weakest part of the film, like that third act. And I feel like we've exerted all this effort uh, for very little reward. Now, I know if that offends you, that opinion, uh, you might be thinking, well, you just don't get it, it all makes sense. Look, I did watch it a second time for this show, um, and I'm going to confess that, yeah, I think it is quite a watchable film. It got me back into it pretty quickly. I think it's a nicely crafted film, it looks good, but I do think it suffers from the plot being the foremost thing and the characters are really just pulled along behind the plot rather than the other way around. I'd rather see characters motivating things. But, you know, not many of these characters have very clear personality traits. And every scene, every scene of dialogue, everything's really about filling in pieces of this massively complicated plot. And look, you watch it the second time when you know what's happened. And, yep, all the pieces are there. They have planted all the seeds. Everything suddenly makes sense. But my argument is, if you didn't really enjoy something the first time, why should you watch it a second time? This is a two-hour-plus movie. And is there much joy in watching something a second time when it really does rely on twists and revelations and you know everything that's going to happen? I don't know, with so many great movies out there, I feel like maybe that's a waste of your time. I also found the film rather silly at times. 
which um, I, I, I think is interesting considering how deadly serious and deadpan it takes itself. Uh, of course, the film is about these two dueling magicians played by Christian Bale and Hugh Jackman. Uh, both of them have these transported man tricks. And um, one of those tricks, the Bale trick, I'm going to get really spoilery here, but you knew this going into it, uh, is revealed to be trickery. It's He's got a brother who is his double, and they've been switching places, and he's, they've been taking turns, one playing the brother, one playing a friend, and then they switch. Uh, the friend has, um, like, who is his sort of mentor, looks exactly like Christian Bale, but with a couple of prosthetics and a moustache. Uh, if you've ever seen Christian Bale in a film, I don't know how you would be fooled into thinking this was anybody other than Christian Bale. All the body language, everything is the exact same. So it's revealed that, yeah, they were brothers and they were doing this all along. So it has a, a rational explanation to this, which gets revealed at the end. But Hugh Jackman's transporting, transported man trick ends up being because of a machine built by Tesla, which is supposedly built from a science perspective, but really, for all intents and purposes, is completely supernatural in its operation, and it is basically a, a deus ex machina. Uh, the machine creates a double of Hugh Jackman, which then uh, falls through a trapdoor into a tank of water, while the real Hugh Jackman teleports across the room to the back of the stage and by the time I discovered oh that's what this is I really wasn't that invested anymore it felt kind of crazy to me and when you've already got this twist as to how Bale's doing the trick and then you have to which is a you know a far-fetched in itself the way the the lengths that these two brothers have gone to in order to pull off this trick is already very far-fetched to then add this extra far-fetched layer by a secondary twist where you go yeah but Hugh Jackman's been doing it like this for me is really a hat upon a hat and then when you add further hats about dead wives and Hugh Jackman really being somebody other than he claims to be etc etc it's a hat wearing a hat, 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 wearing a hat. You press the forward 15 second button on your iPod. Wearing a hat, wearing a hat, wearing a hat. You think this isn't right. You press it again and again and again. Comes back. Wearing a hat, wearing a hat, wearing a hat. That's why the first shot of this film is the floor of a forest with a whole lot of fucking hats spread everywhere. That's the plot right there. Um, other silly things, and you'll notice I'm talking about the film overall right now. We're going to talk about that just briefly, fill in how I feel about the film as a whole, then we're going to focus in very, very specifically just on Scarlet's role. But uh, the other thing I think is silly is this crazy Looney Tunes kind of rivalry happening between Jackman and Bale where these two magicians basically put on fake beards or moustaches and find elaborate ways to injure the other. They're like blowing off fingers, um, breaking legs, doing all sorts of crazy stuff, always in these horrible spirit-gummed disguises. And for me, the first time I watched it, I just thought that was hilarious. It was like watching Wile E. Coyote and the Roadrunner, except they kept switching roles. Or then you've got the incredibly unlikely coincidence of as soon as they um, realise they want to find a double for Hugh Jackman because he wants to duplicate 
Bale's trick using an actual person, sure enough, Scarlet's character knows a double who looks just like Hugh Jackman and also happens to be an actor and lives in the same city. You know, they found this guy in the next scene without even using the internet. You go out into the city that you live in without leaving it, without using the internet, without using your mobile phone, and find a double of yourself. These guys did it in about 20 seconds. I'm going to be really genuous. Gen- genuous? Generous? Genuinely generous. And I'm going to give you a... It's going to say a month. I'll give you a year. See if you can find a double that will fool everyone in the front row within a year. Really difficult to do, and yet Nolan just keeps pushing all this stuff out and expecting us to swallow it. And Scarlet, uh, who has driven many a film by this point in her career, is very much a supporting character here, appearing very late in the game and uh, sidelined for a lot of the film. She leaves early too. And again, like, it's not hard to imagine why she wouldn't jump at the opportunity to be a part of a film directed by Christopher Nolan um, alongside this very accomplished cast. But we really need to separate what does she actually do? Like, what good does this do for her as an actress? Are we going to remember her performance? Is it going to allow her to do things we haven't seen before? Is it something we're going to come away from and think, yeah, Scarlett was really great in that? And, you know, the first trick these guys pull off is the fact that she appears as a sexy, ethereal wisp between Bale and Jackman in a lot of the posters and marketing material. I mean, this is a great trick to sell tickets, perhaps by making you think that she's more important to the film than she actually is. But really, it's a big stretch. I mean, there are other female characters in this film, most notably would be Bale's character's wife, who actually has more of a dramatic arc than Scarlett does, but is she on the poster? No. So clearly, uh, and to her credit, at least it enforces her star appeal at the time. And certainly uh, the marketing people knew that people were keen to see her in things. So I'm not a massive fan of this film. And I know people love Christopher Nolan. He's there parading down the street, wearing his new film proudly. Look at the prestige, everybody. Everybody's cheering and stuff. I'm just this guy in Australia with my little podcast that not many people listen to. And I am putting up my little hand and I'm saying, please, sir, that man is wearing no clothes. Christopher Nolan is in the nud and I can see his chop, sir. It's not terrible. It's not the end of the world. If he wants to parade around naked, that's fine. But I came here to see some clothes. It's a film. You know what I mean. So... We first see Scarlet nearly 36 minutes into this thing, which means, really, she could have watched, like, one and a half episodes of Seinfeld while she was waiting in the wings here. And Nolan really doesn't make a big deal of her arrival, and I have loved it in the past where she really gets to arrive on a scene, but in this particular case, we only realise that she's in the room with Jackman and uh, Michael Caine, who's his magical mentor, Uh, Probably about halfway through the scene, they're practicing these new tricks and we see Kane usher the silent Scarlet into a magic box. Now, how weird is that? That's the second magic box she's been in in this particular year. Uh, 2006 was when this film came out. 
because she was also in a magic box in Scoop, which also featured Hugh Jackman. There's a twist. That's a real life twist. That's art imitating life. And uh, 2006, when you think about it, like, what a strange year for Scarlett. She spent two films in a box and one anchored to a dining table. Not the greatest year for her so far. And um, her physical appearance, I feel, is played down somewhat here. Uh, She sort of looks more like an ordinary girl, probably bordering on lower class. Blonde hair's tied up. Um, She's got a big, like, hair piece in. She's merely an accessory for these two men. Uh, Just really another piece of machinery that's required in order to activate the tricks. And she does shoot a brief smile at the back of Jackman's disinterested head, though. Which is good thinking by Christopher Nolan, because when I see a female character in a film, I don't know about you, but I instantly want to know who she's going to have sex with in this thing. And I like it. It makes me comfortable, because we can deduce from this. Considering her choices, which, you know, when you're thinking about who am I going to partner up with, um, who's my ideal mate for the rest of my life, really a great place to start is to look around the room. Which men are in the room? Save yourself some trouble. Pick one of those guys. And clearly, considering her choices here, she would rather fuck Hugh Jackman than Michael Caine. And her first line is, what's so hard about this? Or perhaps, what's so hard about this? Uh, With a really odd English accent. And I do love you, Scarlett. I think you are incredible. I think you're a great performer. I wouldn't do this if uh, I didn't. But accents so far, up to 2006, haven't really been your forte. But... To be fair, there are a lot of odd accents in this film. Jackman's not really nailing it. Andy Serkis is doing a weird one. David Bowie, who plays Tesla, which you go, holy shit, that's what made me want to see the film. David Bowie is Tesla? Fucking sign me up. He looks kind of awkward and quiet in this thing. It's not really comfortable. He looks like he's kind of going, sorry, Chris, I just I haven't done this for a while. I'm a little, uh, I'm a little, uh, I need some time. Almost feel there's some irony about that first line being, what's so hard about this? Because that's my question too. What is so hard about the role that she's been given at this point? Use her, challenge her, give her something to do. But no, not yet. She's got no other dialogue in this scene. Uh, but we do see her take her skirt off. And look, slow your roll, bro Hansons, before you get too excited here. She is wearing a voluminous pair of white ye olde pantaloons. And then Michael Caine, the bastard, the geezer, unceremoniously stuffs her inside a small crate. She does scowl, however, before she uh, disappears into the darkness, which I assume is her thinking, uh, hang on, Christopher Nolan, it, this is really what you wanted me for? I guess actors are props for Nolan here, and all props must be stored away at the end of the day. So some movies... They give their stars trailers. Scarlet was put into this little box in between takes. And then we shift towards them rehearsing on an actual stage and she still has no lines. And Kane basically remarks here that she's not that experienced, but she sure looks pretty. Which kind of sums up her role in this film, which is not really a wonderful basis for a nuanced and interesting character. And then she's dolled up in full makeup now. Uh, she's wearing her sparkly stage corset. So she certainly does look great. Michael Caine's right. 
His eyes might be old and a little roomy, but he knows uh, art when he sees it. But the truth is, she's still just there to pick up Jackman's stuff. Like, she obligingly carries his birdcage around, she smiles a lot, doesn't say anything. And then we switch to the actual stage show. And here, she smiles, again, beautiful smile, and she carries a hat. You know, this is going to be a hard episode to pick her three greatest feats. I'm going to be going, ah, what's feat number one? Was it carrying the cage? Or was it carrying the hat? A lot of uh, enthusiasm with that hat. That cage had a bird in it, so, you know, she had to be careful. Oh, and then oh, a tiny bit of dialogue. She mutters an apology to Hugh backstage for fucking up something or other. And then she helps him put on his jacket. And then she passes him a cage again. She is uh, an assistant to Mr. Jackman, an assistant in this film, and an assistant to Christopher Nolan in terms of his storytelling. And I mean, look, she's a fucking top Hollywood actress here. Like, would you cast Brad Pitt in a film where he just silently stood in the background unpacking Melissa McCarthy's groceries, washing a car, handing her a magazine? My memory of this was that she was actually in it less than she is. There's a lot of scenes which she's in, but she just doesn't have a lot to say. And that kind of disturbed me more, made me angrier at Nolan. Because I just feel like, look, it's fine to have a small part in a film, especially if it's a memorable part. But if you just wanted the experience, you wanted to come in, hang out, do the thing. Like, think of her in Chef, for example, which we'll get to eventually. Small part. But, you know, she was probably on set for, like, a couple of days, and that was it. And she got to hang out with all those people, and she left her mark in that scene that she's in. In this, she's hanging around the set all the time, but they're not giving her anything to do. Except looking pretty, which is good at, but she's more than that. Just even her voice, she's got the best voice in the world. Why would you saddle her with this crazy accent? And then because you saddled her with this crazy accent, is that why you suddenly give her zero lines? Isn't Christopher Nolan English? Wouldn't hearing, like, a bad English accent annoy the shit out of him every day? If I was listening to a bad Australian accent every day, it would annoy the shit out of me. This podcast annoys the shit out of me, and this is my real voice. Can't even imagine what it's doing to you. So, 52 minutes in, Scarlett, who has still only had two lines, appears in Jackman's dressing room, her blonde hair down... You hear that? I don't know what the fuck they're doing outside. That's like some Mad Max shit out there on the roads. I don't know if you heard that. That was crazy. Uh, Scarlet has got a blonde hair down. This is her party hair. It's flowing. She goes sort of sidles into Hugh Jackman's dressing room. She's got a sly grin on her face. And she proclaims in her best Eliza Doolittle accent that she don't have anywhere to go. So she's clearly angling for the inevitable sexings. Or... What I like to call, starting from now, the sexening. And she acts like a bit of a rube. She gives some exposition. She shifts her accent around a bit. She sort of like plays with it in her mouth like a loose tooth. Uh, she pledges her allegiance to Jackman and starts to help him with a better disguise, a better beard or moustache or whatever, so that he can sneak into one of Bale's shows and mail, mail, maim him some more. No sexening yet, though. No sexening in this scene. I thought this was going to be some sexening. Not yet. I'm sure it's just around the corner. And she does indeed later comfort him when he returns. He didn't manage to maim Bale. 
And, uh, you know, he's all distressed that he saw Bale's transported man trick for the first time. And it was so incredibly rad and it makes him feel so incredibly lame. But really, she's just feeding him a few short lines so that he can react. And so that he can provide us with more exposition. Because if there's anything that this film is confident with and has a lot of, it's exposition, because exposition rules and character drools, right? It's the Nolan motto here. Yeah! Fuck you, character. I'm here with my man, Plot. Give me five, Plot. Yeah! Oh, not so hard. You're a big Plot. Huge. Very robust, muscular Plot. Then um, this whole double scheme happens. That's the next time we see Scarlet. And she gets the task of introducing Hugh to his boozy double. And again, her hair is down. So we know this is party mode. This isn't work mode. But again, she's still just an accessory doing what she needs to do to make the machinery around her work. To grind the gears of this big old lumbering plot. Uh, We next see her diligently rehearsing on stage again. No character, it's still just showing the audience how all these various things work. And then finally, under the stage, her and Hugh go down the trapdoor, they're under the stage. She just can't take it anymore. She's a female character in this film. She's got to get it on with somebody, so she aggresses. He's actually mid-sentence. He's, like, explaining magic. He's all about the magic. That's his craft. That's his pride. She's like, no, 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 no. No, let's talk leans in, starts kissing him, and now has finally officially sowed the seeds for the sexening. And her accent really fumbles at the end here, making me think that perhaps Hugh sucked the accent out of her with his lips. So now the two of them are a couple, which is important because that'll enable some plot to happen later. And uh, the show begins again, the performance Now she stands and she smiles. She's got big cleavage now as well, so that's good too. And um, then when the double appears on stage, the boozy Hugh Jackman double, he forcibly kisses her. So she's sexually assaulted on top of all this. And then moments later, she's seen celebrating with wine and kissing the real Hugh Jackman. And I'm pretty sure this is followed by more kissing. And a slightly different accent. That whole, like, rough geezer accent's gone a little bit more refined now. But Hugh rebuffs her because, hey, you're starting to get into relationships. And relationships are great, but I'm an angry magician with a vendetta. And we got some plot to take care of. And she's like, oh, sorry, I thought maybe we could have a break. Maybe have a scene together. Maybe have a chat about our feelings because, uh, you know, you can't have plot all the time. And he's like, no. There's a lot of plot. I need you to leave me and go and work with Bale and be my spy. And she's really confused by this, as am I, uh, because it's motivated by driving the convoluted plot and not by character. But she's like, okay, I'll go and be a spy for you with your enemy that I've been helping you craft fake beards for so that you can go and maim him. Uh, sure. Hat on a hat on a hat. So Scarlet, now dressed all in black with a black hat because she's a spy. 
spy goes and offers herself to Christian Bale. I don't mean sexually, guys, but don't worry. That's probably around the corner. She's just like, I want to be your assistant now. And she says, I'm going to tell you the truth. But there is no truth in this film to tell. There is some sweet lingering eye contact field close-ups of her here as she looks at Bale, which to me, to this season viewer, suggests a future sexening with Bale as well. So magic, magic, Tesla vendettas. Um, after Bale manages to break Hugh's leg in this, uh, I think he um, tied it to a big Acme rocket, shot it down a canyon in the desert, uh, Hugh completely arcs up at Scarlet. He's angry. He accuses her of sleeping with Christian Bale. Now, this is her one chance in the film where she's not just handing around props. She gets to be dramatic and yell back, but it's so brief. And to be honest, it's too little too late. We are just drowning in plot at this point, And her character has zero space to breathe. We're still, like, our minds are racing. We're trying to keep up with everything. And these struggles, these little romantic struggles between the, the two of them seem to be, or the three of them, I should say, but seem to be the most, the most least important thing in the film. The most least. Do you know I used to be a professional writer at one point in my life? It's true. But that was long ago. Let's not dwell on it. It's like uh, riding a bike, you forget it very, very quickly. And um, look, the real reason that she's here in this scene isn't because of jealousy, isn't for them to talk about their relationships, it's because she needs to give him Christian Bale's exposition diary. So basically, she has to hand him a prop, which is what she's been doing as his assistant the entire film. And then she confesses, you know what? I am in love with Christian Bale. And then we see her being his assistant on stage. And do you know what this harlot, this hussy is doing? She is handing him props instead. Passing him stuff. No shame. Her next big scene is a rather socially awkward dinner with Bale and his um, downtrodden wife. And also that uh, mentor pal who happens to look a hell of a lot like Christian Bale in prosthetic makeup with a fake moustache. And then there's a point where we flash back to that scene where she comes into Jackman and says, I'm going to tell the truth. And it continues beyond where we cut last time. And we see that she really is double-crossing Jackman and that she really is pledging her actual genuine allegiance to Bale. So not only is she, you know, sleeping with all these different guys, she's very two-faced, very manipulative, very fickle. Ha! Women! Put her back in a little crate, forget about her. That'd be the only sane thing to do doesn't happen here. It's weird though because I, I feel like her character has shifted in this sequence. Like she seems far more educated and clued in on what's going on. More manipulative. More scheming. Uh, her accent's more refined. And she's here now instructing Christian Bale on what to do. So I really have no solid idea of who she's supposed to be as a person where she's from or where she's really going. 
And then just in case we didn't believe that uh, she is sleeping with Bale, we do get to see some scenes, not sex scenes, but we do see scenes of Bale and Scarlet in bed together during a montage. So um, if you're going to be on a poster in between these two guys, you may as well go them both. Christian Bale, Hugh Jackman, two big white pieces of bread in a very memorable sandwich. Her second last scene, Scarlet waits in a room wearing just her underwear until Bale enters so that she can kiss him again and she doesn't really do much else here. Perhaps a little bit of exposition. Can you imagine how different movie starring men would be if the characters acted like this all the time? Like, what would Die Hard be like if John McClane just stayed in his room in his underwear waiting for a girl to come in to kiss him? Sounds like gunfire downstairs, but, uh... <gasps> I better stay up here in case any girls come in and want to kiss me. Commissioner Gordon's out there. He's got the bat signal trained on the sky. He's getting really impatient. The city's in chaos. Batman's back in the manor. Going, uh, I cut the mouth out of my mask just in case any ladies want to uh, plant one on me. What do you say, ladies? Ladies? Nah, good old day. And then after Bale's wife commits suicide, Scarlet gets a quiet moment with Bale at a cafe. So this is really her last chance to act. She's concerned about him. Um, She looks great in this sequence, but it really is just a chance for him to have his cryptic moment about how he's sort of a split person, that part of him was always somewhere else, like it was a twin brother. And she says, in her criticism of him, it's inhuman to be so cold. Which is such an ironic line for Christopher Nolan and his brother to write in a film which is filled with cold, distant, inhuman characters. And then after a final taunt about how Bale and Jackman deserve each other, she exits from the film. And look, it's a great place for her to leave because uh, that last half an hour is all about Oh, so you think this? Well, I did this. Well, actually, I was able to do this because of this and this and this. Yeah, well, I did this. Oh, well, I'm not who you think I am. I'm this person. Well, I'm that person. Oh, that's not my moustache. That's his moustache. What? We? Huh? Nolan. So in conclusion, you notice I've raced through this one. It's quicker than normal. This is how long an episode should be. I think maybe this is a better format to discuss the film in general and then get down to brass scarlet tax. I don't get a lot of feedback from you fuckers, but if you prefer this way, please let me know, because uh, we've still got a lot of films going forward. But uh, in conclusion, um, look, I always ask why was she cast, why did she do it, etc, etc. You can absolutely understand and respect the desire to work with Christopher Nolan, but as his legions of fans would kind of support this theory, At the end of the day, when you see a film like this, it's really only Christopher Nolan who gets the glory. Like, what you remember about The Prestige is the fact that it is The Prestige. You don't remember Scarlett's performance. It's like that in a lot of his films, in fact. I mean, what do you remember about Memento? Ironically, a film about remembering things. But you don't remember Guy Pearce's performance. No one goes, oh, Memento, yeah. 
yeah, Guy Pearce was so amazing in that. What a great character. No, you remember the gimmick. You remember the magic trick. You remember the fact that that film is told backwards. It's about Nolan, not his actors, not his characters. Whereas, ironically, I, I feel that Nolan's best film is The Dark Knight. And that's because he gives all the glory to his actor, Heath Ledger. And because the Joker is such a nuanced, interesting character who is driving that plot forward and giving the film the momentum it needs, it's a more well-rounded and interesting film because of it. But not a single actor shines in this film. Nolan's the magician. These are his props. These are his assistants, his, his accomplices, his stooges. They move all the pieces around and they get the trick done and he takes the bow at the end. Great for him, but I don't think it's so great for Scarlett. I think if this was one of the few things you'd seen her in, she wouldn't leave a particularly great impression. And that is a damn shame, because we know, as Scarlet scientists, exactly what she is capable of. Some housekeeping. Scarcabulary. What's the new word we're going to add to the lexicon today? great thing about studying a, a new area is that uh, you get to make up all the terms. I'm going to say it has to be the sexoning, which I think is like when a female character has to quickly choose one of the main male characters, preferably who are currently in the room, uh, to have sex with, and, and therefore the inevitable sex act that will soon follow, usually, hopefully, within about 10 minutes. Otherwise, I might get up and do something else. So uh, keep those female characters having sex, please. And her three greatest feats. One, she worked really well with the props. I didn't see her drop anything, fumble anything. Always had a smile on her face. Great attitude. Great care. Two, she managed to squeeze herself into a very small box. You might think I'm being facetious. You might think that's unimportant, but it actually shows versatility in an actor, and it means that there are lots of other roles she could play, like um, R2-D2. Kenny Baker won't be around forever. She can fit into a small, tight space. She'd be great for that. Can you imagine a sort of mashup between um, Star Wars and her? I mean, she has such a beautiful, beautiful, evocative voice. Can you imagine, like, Star Wars, Episode 8, Luke Skywalker's finally like, I've had 30 years of all this beeping bullshit. I don't understand it. I don't have the fucking computer in my X-Wing around all the time to translate this stuff. I am, uh, like, a fucking bearded hermit living like Obi-Wan now. I'm kind of lonely, I'm putting in a new module, and then it's like that movie Her, where is just like, yeah, what are you thinking about? And he's like, <laughs> nailed it, sold, do it, and three, um, um, <laughs> she's still a fucking movie star. Like, I don't care, you can put her in a really bad film, but she's still got this incredible on-screen presence. She's great to watch, great to look at. You always want to know more. She leaves you wanting more. And that's why I'm frustrated, because I want more. I want to see more stuff, do more things, treat her right, directors. Come on. 
Next week on ScarJo A Go Go, I'm quite excited actually because after all this stuff, I really want something light and fun. And I especially want something where she is the central role, something where she's top build, where it's her film. It's the Nanny Diaries. I've never seen the Nanny Diaries, but I'm, at this point, I'm like, bring me some of that Nanny Diaries. I'm ready. I want to read your diaries. I'm interested. I don't care if the film ends up being about or the time she watched a nanny marathon and found herself strangely attracted to Fran Drescher. That would be... that. I would watch that film. Did you know she fell on her fanny? It's so weird here. But yet, I've heard people say, you know that nanny diaries, Luke? You know that nanny diaries... It's not so bad. It's pretty good. I quite like the Nanny Diaries, Luke. I quite like it. And I'll say it again if provoked. Nanny Diaries! To which I back away. Both hands clearly showing. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I think it'll be great. In the meantime, please listen to the other podcasts that I do. Uh, the other ones, I've got guests. It's not just me. I've got co-hosts and things. So that might be more palatable to you. I don't know. But there's FP Cast, which is the podcast of Fruitless Pursuits. It's a general pop culture news reviews show every Monday. And the other one is the Book Was Better podcast, where every week, myself and a guest host read a shitty novelization of a film. We uh, read out the best bits, we talk about it, we analyze it, and we make fun of it. Great show, a lot of fun. Uh, you can find both these shows on iTunes or at www.fruitlesspursuits.com which is a site that I run. And please rate and review this show on iTunes if you enjoy it. No one's really done that in Australia, which is really disappointing. We have had some American people do it. If you listen to this show, if you appreciate the work that goes into it, it would really be helpful to me because I would love more people to hear this show and justify me having to sit through the prestige again. So thank you very much. I'm going to do my own magic trick now. And I'm gonna disappear! I'm still here. She starts off really small and then she grows, she grows, she grows, she grows. Let's see how far she goes. Scar Joe, go, go.